Last time we spoke about Operation Backhander, the landings at Cape Gloucester. General Douglas MacArthur unleashed another cog in the machine that was his drive back to the Philippines. The first Marines under General Rupertus were back in action, spearheading the landings at Cape Gloucester. The landings were successful and multiple Allied units began advancing towards the airdrome. Colonel Sumia realized the futility of attempting a defense upon the open ground against American armor, so he pulled his units away towards Razorback Hill, from which they could launch harassment maneuvers against the new American perimeter. Over on New Guinea, the Australians continued their drive towards Seo, pushing the Japanese even further north in the process. The Japanese were being attacked in multiple places without the ability to contest them everywhere. What would the Japanese commanders do to establish a proper defense now? This episode is The Landing at Sador. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Greg Watson. But before we begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and so much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, The Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, The Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube. Over there, I just released a full documentary I did with Dave Holland on many of the medals of honor earned during the Guadalcanal campaign. Also, please check out my Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash thepacificwarchannel for more exclusive podcasts. The next exclusive podcast is going to be on why the Japanese performed so many atrocities during World War II. It's going to be a gruesome one. Come check it out. Last week, we left off with General Nakai unleashing a counteroffensive against Kesaway. The counteroffensive was successful at pushing the Australian commandos out of the area to prevent them from encroaching upon Medang. These actions worried General Vesey, who thought the Japanese might follow them up with an offensive against Empu. Vesey elected to carry out a punitive attack along Chaggy Ridge. Now, as a bit of a refresher, as I do think I once did describe it, but Chaggy Ridge is located six miles north of Dampu. The Razorback Ridge has one elevation of more than 5,000 feet, running roughly southeast to the northwest. The highest point on the ridge is known as the Kankiri Saddle. There are also three high-elevation points along the ridge that the Australians named the Pimple, the Intermediate Sniper's Pimple, and the Green Sniper's Pimple. The Japanese had constructed four miles of defense along the northern part of the ridge. These positions dominated the trail along which the Australians would eventually have to cross. The trail was narrow, only two or three feet wide, and there were drops on either side of the 300 to 500 feet. The Japanese had also constructed a rough road on the coast side to a point between the Mijim and Ferro rivers, making supply to the defenders much easier. The pimples were the strong points, and the Japanese had built fortified positions with machine guns and deep trenches at each. Now, Vesey's punitive force consisted of the 2 and 16th Battalion under the temporary command of Major Garth Symington. Patrols had been sent to figure out decent approaches for an attack against the pimple, 
but everything indicated there was only a narrow path to perform a frontal assault. The Symington planned to assault the Pimple, an exploit for about 400 yards along the ridge with Captain Christian's B Company, while Captain Anderson's D Company maneuvered behind to consolidate the ground gained. Fortunately, Symington would be receiving some aerial support from the American 41st Squadron and the Australian No. 4 Squadron, artillery support from the 8th Battery and 54th Battery, and backup from the 2 and 27th Battalion, who would launch a diversionary attack against the Japanese along the Faraya River and the mainstream area. During the morning of December the 27th, the assault began with 16 Kitty Hawks and two boomerangs bombing the pimple, followed up by artillery. Dive bombing, strafing, and artillery fire was intense, causing reverberation and roars that could be heard up and down the Ramu Valley. An hour later, B Company's leading platoon departed the start line under the foliage of the rainforest to scale the rock face leading to the pimple. Although the bombardment was stunning, the day's Japanese defenders quickly responded to the invaders by tossing grenades from the well-sighted pillboxes atop the pimple. The Australians dashed forward and wiped out the forward pillbox, securing their toehold on the ridge. With the artillery firing further forward, the Australians were soon able to capture the second pimple feature just 100 yards ahead, successfully clearing the Japanese from their entrenchments. However, at this point, B Company came across a strong rock bunker. They first allowed the artillery to smash it, then they tossed grenades while trying to outflank the defenders. A Japanese defender refused to surrender, covering the entrance to his pillbox with a ground sheet, and for about two hours flicked away the grenades thrown at him before they could explode. Eventually he was blasted out when a grenade was tied to the end of a bamboo pole, which was poked into the pit. The pin was pulled out at a length of string. More than a hundred grenades were thrown during the day at the rock bunker, in front of the second pimple. As hard as they tried, it was impossible to outflank as the sides of the Razorback guarding the bunker were almost perpendicular. Christian was forced to pull B Company back and dig in on the second pimple. Meanwhile, D Company came up to relieve the exhausted men of B Company. To deal with the bunker menace, the Australian pioneers chiseled a track along the cliff face towards it and designed a special bomb consisting of a grenade placed in a chemical and sealed in a field ration tin. During the morning of the 28th, D Company advanced over their newly cut track and hurled the new bombs, successfully blowing up the enemy bunker. Now, while all this was occurring, Lieutenant Scott's 18th platoon was advancing down the eastern slope of Shaggy Ridge, attempting a encircling maneuver against the 3rd Pimple. At 10.50 a.m., Scott reported being at the base of the 3rd Pimple, and at a quarter of an hour later, the artillery and motors began firing smoke to cover his platoon's advance. At the foot of the objective, Scott ordered his platoon sergeant, Longman, to take a small party of Owen gunners up the third pimple. Under heavy enemy machine gun fire, Longman and three men charged an enemy machine gun post near the top. Two of his men were wounded, but Longman and the other man continued to advance upon the enemy post and eventually silenced it with Owen gun fire. To reach the enemy post, they had to pull themselves up a steep slope with one hand and fire their Owens with another. Still under heavy fire from the other enemy posts, the two men covered the evacuation of the two wounded and neutralized the fire of another enemy post 40 yards away, which was opposing the advance of the rest of the platoon, led by the wounded, Scott, up to the cliff face. Nine minutes after Longman led the first assault, Scott was in possession of the third pimple. He was covering the advance of Lieutenant Mackay's 16th platoon to the fourth and highest pimple, later named Mackay's Knoll, farthest along the ridge. The two platoons then dug in on the newly won ground. During the afternoon, the battered Japanese attempted a counterattack, but they were easily repelled. 
suffering a total of 28 deaths during the battle against Symington. The Australians would have three killed and eight wounded. After the pimples were captured, the fighting fell into a series of artillery duels and patrol skirmishes. With the pimples in hand, the Australians could observe Medang. Vesey at this time acquired further support from General MacArthur, who relieved his exhausted brigades with the 18th and 15th Brigades. Meanwhile, General Adachi sensed key points in the Medang area were not well defended, so he ordered the bulk of the 41st Division to advance from Wewak to Medang. In early December, the 2nd Battalion, 237th Regiment, and 2nd Mountain Artillery Battalion of the 41st Group were deployed at Karkar Island. However, the movement of the rest of the division was sent to the Gogol area, and they were heavily delayed by storms that caused numerous rivers to overflow. But now we are going to have to actually shift gears and head over to the Juan Peninsula, where a new Allied landing was about to occur. In early December, General MacArthur finally decided to act upon a suggestion put forward by his Assistant Chief of Staff, Lieutenant General Stephen Chamberlain. Chamberlain had argued Sador, on the south side of the Juan Peninsula, should be occupied in order to construct an advanced air and naval base. MacArthur waited until two days before the Arawi expedition before giving orders to Kruger to prepare plans for the landing at Sador. Because of limited landing craft, the landings would need to be pushed until January the 2nd. The operation was codenamed Michaelmas, and initially it was thought that the 503rd Parachute Infantry could just be airdropped over Sador, but a limited number of aircraft killed this one in the crib. Thus, the 32nd Division, who had been earmarked for the cancelled Gazmata landings, were chosen for the task. The general outline for the operation was discussed at a conference held on Goodenough Island on December the 20th, attended by Barbie, Major General William Gill, Whitehead, commanding the 32nd Division, Colonel Clarence Martin, commanding the 126th Regiment, and other staff officers. Allied intelligence reports indicated the Japanese had a few forces in the Sado region. Nevertheless, the plans called for landings in force on three beaches codenamed Red, White, and Blue on the west shore of Dekis Bay. If the Americans could successfully seize Sador, this would cut off the Japanese retreat from Finchhafen, and therefore would also trap another Japanese division at Seo. Kruger selected the 126th Regiment for the task after they were rebuilt following the Battle of Bunagona, and they were retrained in amphibious warfare. Brigadier General Clarence Martin would act as the commander of the new Michaelmas task force. MacArthur did not have much time to carry out ground reconnaissance, thus the three beaches selected were chosen primarily from aerial photography data. They would prove to be quite narrow, rocky, and exposed to heavy seas. Because the Allied intelligence indicated there were very few Japanese forces in the area, MacArthur elected not to perform a preliminary aerial bombardment. Admiral Barbie's amphibious force were now very well-experienced veterans with amphibious landings, so the last-minute notice did not hinder them too much. On January the 1st, Martin's men were tossed onto 9 APDs, 17 LCIs, and 2 LSTs supported by 9 of Barbie's destroyers and Admiral Crutchley's cruiser force hoping to intercept some IGN forces, if possible. Yet, Crutchley would be disappointed, as Admiral Koga had his hands full with something cooking up at Rabal and Kaving, so he could not afford to dispense any units to the Sador area. What could hinder the landings was air forces from the IGA at Wewak, Though they were considerably weakened with just 39 fighters, 17 light bombers, and 7 heavy bombers available to them, after so many Allied airstrikes. The landings went off very smoothly, the beaches were first hit by 2,000 shells within 20 minutes prior to the first LCV landings at around 7 a.m. 
Two battalions of the 126 landed abreast without opposition, and they quickly established a perimeter. Soon, a third battalion passed through and extended the perimeter further left upon some high ground, just southwest of the unserviceable airfield. Captain Meredith Muggins, who played a key role in the capture of Sandananda, recalled his impressions of this seemingly uneventful landing. When we landed at Sador, it was a, an amazing sight. There were dozens of warships bombarding the coast. The sound was like a rolling thunder, and the smoke hung along the ground. As we approached the beach, airstrikes began. Heavy bombers dropped their loads of high explosive from a few thousand feet. Then came in B-25 strafers, shooting everything in sight, clobbering positions. Behind them came fighters to give the Japs a final working over. There was very little opposition when we landed. We found a few wandering around in shell shock. What a contrast from the days at Buna and Sanananda, only a year before, when we were fighting with rifles, grenades, and even rocks. Thus, 8,000 troops were landed ashore by the end of the day. The only real resistance came in the form of some air raids from Wewak, beginning at 4 p.m. Nine Japanese Nakajima Ki-49s, codenamed Helen Aircraft, escorted up by 20 Zeros and Kawasaki Ki-61 Tony fighters, bombed the beach area at 4.30 p.m. There were three more air raids during the night, and 49 over the course of the month, but they were quite small in nature. Thus, on January the 3rd, MacArthur triumphantly stated, We have seized Sador on the north coast of New Guinea. In a combined operation of ground, sea, and air forces, elements of the 6th Army landed at three beaches under the cover of heavy air and naval bombardment. The enemy was surprised both strategically and tactically, and the landings were accomplished without any loss. The harbor and airfields are in our firm grasp. Enemy forces on the north coast between the 6th Army and the advancing Australians are trapped with no source of supply and face disintegration and destruction. The Sator area and her landing strip were in Allied hands, and further men and supplies would be brought over without enemy interference. Over on the Japanese side, General Adachi had the understrength and exhausted 51st Division garrisoning Sio, while the 20th Division were retreating from the Fishafen area. On December the 30th, Adachi arrived to Kairi, where he ordered the 51st to advance to Bogia, once the 20th would arrive at Sio. Since mid-December, some units, such as the bulk of the 66th Regiment, had already made it to Bogia, where they could be rehabilitated, leaving just the 3rd Composite Battalion of the 66th Regiment the 3rd Battalion HQ, and the 10th Company, and a machine gun company to garrison Gali under the leadership of General Meroya. Just as Adachi was preparing to depart on January the 2nd, he received word of the Allied landing at Sador, which effectively opened up a new and important threat against his isolated forces. Adachi believed it was now useless to hold on to the CO and the Vitesse Strait areas, since enemy troops were also landing on New Britain. Furthermore, his main base at Medang was quite vulnerable now. Thus, Adachi placed General Nakano in command of both divisions, now designated the Nakano Force, and he ordered him to advance the forces to Gali by submarine to try and secure the new key supply point, while the Shogi Detachment would delay the Australian advance to Sio. Now, to do this, Nakano would have to break through or bypass the Sador area over land to arrive safely at Medang. Additionally, the 41st Division was ordered to depart Wewak immediately and advance overland towards Medang. General Nakai was given orders to advance his detachment towards the Sator area to try and contain the American advance as long as possible, 
and this would only leave the 2nd Battalion, 78th Regiment under Colonel Matsumoto Masujiro on the Kankiri Saddle, Shaggy Ridge area. On January the 3rd, Lieutenant General Goro Mano was to be flown directly to Alexhafen to assume command of all the units in the Medang region, including the Matsumoto Detachment. Back over in Seidor, the Americans began to send patrols and an outpost was set up at Sel on January the 5th, while the 3rd Battalion, 126th Regiment, skirmished with other American patrols at Teteri and Bilal. General Moroya managed to secure Gali without much difficulty. Meanwhile, upon receiving the news of the Sador landing, Brigadier Windair's 20th Brigade continued their advance, expecting the march to be a lot easier. After fording the Sanga River on the 3rd of January, the 2 and 17th Battalion advanced to the Suzuma River while fighting off elements of Colonel Miyaki's rearguard. At this point, General Katagiri's forces were in a full retreat towards Kari, only performing some rearguard actions around Kelanoa. Thus, the 2 and 17th's advance went pretty much undisturbed, and they reached the Dalman River on January the 6th. Kelanoa offered more defensible positions, so Windier cautiously sent some patrols to scout the area out, trying to avoid unnecessary casualties. At 8 a.m. on the 8th, the 2 and 17th resumed their advance, and half an hour later, their leading company was met with some fire from a track junction. There seemed to be about 40 determined Japanese with four machine guns holding the area. The Australians killed eight Japanese and lost two in the process, with another two wounded. As the company could make no headway without further casualties, they withdrew to a kunai patch just southeast of the track junction, so artillery, motors, and machine guns could hit the Japanese. The position was hit with motors heavily causing the Japanese to withdraw during the night. The next day at 9.30 a.m., the Australian battalion advanced through the position finding abandoned pillboxes, foxholes, and several dead Japanese. Later during the day, a group of 30 heavily armed Japanese fired upon the battalion 1,500 yards from the Bury River. The Australians unleashed artillery, motors, and machine guns upon them until 4 p.m. when some tanks arrived forcing the Japanese to flee. Meanwhile, the Japanese were able to repair 12 barges, which were quickly used to evacuate the wounded towards Gali. Unfortunately, Allied PT boats were lurking in the area like sharks. The PT boats unsuccessfully attacked Adachi's submarine that was bringing him back over to Medang, but managed to destroy one barge carrying 100 wounded near Herwath Point and damaged many others. Most of the wounded would reach Gali by the 10th, and the 20th Division advanced past Kiari on the 9th. They were drawing ever closer to Gali. The 2 and 17th crossed the Buri River on the 10th, and they reached the Kapugawa River the next day without any opposition. General Nakano departed Kiari with his division heading for Gali. It was now only the Shogi Detachment that stood in the path of the Australians. The Shogi Detachment received orders on January the 13th to withdraw towards Sio, using an exhausting inland route going from Nambariwa to Nokopo. The Australians would soon enter the ruins of Nambariwa, finding the Japanese had destroyed numerous large dumps there. Nambariwa had been the principal Japanese supply base for the Finchafen area. Both banks of its river had been barge-loading points. There were numerous facilities, such as a barge workshop, engineer store dumps, hospital areas, and a bivouac area. By January the 15th, the Australian forces would occupy Sio completely uncontested. General Wooten's 9th Division had completed their mission, and it would be their last action in New Guinea. Wooten had received word in early January that the 8th Brigade, led by Brigadier Claude Cameron, would be brought over to Finchafen to relieve the 24th Brigade. Now with the fall of Sio, General Berryman ordered the 5th Division, now under the command of Major General Alan Ramsey, to take over the forward area. 
Mop-up operations would continue for a week, until the 4th Battalion, 8th Brigade, and 5th Division officially took over CO. The advance from Fortification Point to CO saw the 20th Brigade suffer 3 deaths, 13 wounded, and 958 sick from malaria. Thus, mosquitoes remained a larger foe than the Japanese, as usual, on New Guinea. The 20th Brigade had marched 50 miles in 24 days and counted a total of 303 dead Japanese. They captured another 22. Within the four months campaign going all the way back to September the 22nd, Wound's 9th Division had suffered 283 deaths, 744 wounded, but estimated that they had killed 3,099 Japanese, captured 39, and inflicted around 4,644 wounded. Yet that is all for New Guinea, as we're going to head back over to New Britain now. With the airdrum secured and a strong defensive perimeter surrounding it, General Rupertus radioed the commander of the 6th Army, 1st Marine Division presents to you as an early New Year gift, the complete airdrum of Cape Gloucester. Situation well in hand due to fighting spirit of the troops. The usual Marine luck and the help of God. General Kruger expressed himself as delighted. At his advance headquarters in Port Moresby, General Douglas MacArthur presented the airdrome to the people of the United States with his compliments and he sent Rupertus the following dispatch. I extend my heartiest congratulations to your officers and men. I am filled with pride and gratitude by their resourceful determination in capturing Cape Gloucester. Your gallant division has maintained the immortal record of the Marine Corps and covered itself with glory. And with that, General Rupertus raised the United States flag on an improvised staff above the main strip with the simple ceremonies on December the 31st being held. Soon American engineers were brought over to repair the airfield as the Japanese sent nightly raids to try and hamper their efforts. The Japanese still held several operational airfields within the range, but their efforts to bomb the American positions were hampered by terrible weather as well. They also never massed air forces to attack in great strength. Thus, the damage was always minor and easily repairable. To the east, Assistant Commander of the 1st Marines, Brigadier General Lemuel Shepard, assumed command of the forces within Yellow Beach's perimeter. Due to the lack of Japanese resistance around the airdrome, the Marine commanders were convinced General Matsuda was retaining the bulk of his strength in the Borgen Bay area, thus leaving Colonel Sumia out to dry. Shepard elected to take his force and use them to clear up the Borgen Bay area. On January the 1st, he proposed to hold fast on the left and center of Yellow Beach's perimeter, while his right line consisting of the 3rd Battalions of the 7th and 5th Marines would advance southeast. On the other side, Colonel Katayama had just arrived at Magarapua with his 2nd Battalion on January the 1st. It seems at this point, Matsuda made an error. Perhaps it's because he was essentially a transportation expert rather than a combat leader. Perhaps it was due to his failed initial attacks but he decided to place Katayama in command of all the forces in the Borken Bay area. Now designated the Katayama Detachment, these forces were the 2nd Battalion, 53rd Regiment, the 2nd and 3rd Battalions, 141st Regiment. There would also soon be Major Tatsumi Asaishichi's 3rd Battalion, who were still en route from Nigol and Cape Bushing. Katayama first tackled his command by underestimating his enemy's strength. Katayama ordered an offensive in force against Target Hill to be led by Captain Mukai Toyoji's 2nd Battalion, 141st Regiment. 
Major Takabe Sinichi's 2nd Battalion, 53rd Regiment, would attack the center of the Marine perimeter to confuse the Americans and prevent them from reinforcing the hill. At this time, Target Hill was being defended by the 1st Battalion, 7th Marines, more particularly their A Company. This unit was deployed with its 1st Platoon defending the area on the left between the beach and the swamp, the 2nd Platoon holding a series of strong points on some dry ground, which could be rarely found in the swamp area, and only the 3rd Platoon on the hill proper. Unbeknownst to Katayama, Shepard had begun his offensive at 10 a.m. on the 2nd. Thus, two offensives were about to run right into each other. The 3rd Battalion, 7th Marines, under the temporary command of Lieutenant Colonel Lewis Puller, and the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, under the command of Lieutenant Colonel David McDougall, were advancing abreast southeast towards Suicide Creek. The terrain they were traversing was particularly brutal. The 3rd Battalion had to hack their way through the jungle, going some 300 yards, where they would come across some well-prepared Japanese positions. The 5th Battalion had a longer distance to travel, but would encounter less resistance at the early phase. The 5th Battalion attempted an encircling movement from the west. The assault troops soon encountered the face of the same Japanese pocket that was holding up the 3rd Battalion, and they were halted in turn. As a result, the attacking lines on the night of January the 2nd and throughout the 3rd resembled a huge letter U, with the enemy strongpoint contained on three sides. Recognizing Suicide Creek was a major obstacle, the Japanese had sighted their positions skillfully to cover it. Time after time, Marines attempted crossings only to be fired upon from invisible positions. The Japanese had become experts at field fortifications. The jungle curtailed both their attackers' freedom of movement and enhanced their own concealment. Marines would need to get within just a few feet of the emplacements in order to locate them, by which time, few of them would be left alive to spot them. Even their lack of fortification materials like cement and steel reacted in favor of the Japanese. For the earth and log bunkers which they improvised were too soft surface to detonate bazooka rockets, and the heaviest weapons the infantry were capable of bringing to the battle were just that, bazookas. To support these bunkers, they had to dig their foxholes rather deep between and under the flaring buttresses and roots of giant trees that were characteristic of the region. These would camouflage them well with foliage and allowed for very cunning interlocking firing lanes. Artillery motor shells and air bombs were all pretty useless in reacting to such positions, owing to the fantastically high forest cover that usually caused trees to burst, to which the deeply dug enemy was virtually invulnerable. The Marines gradually surrounded the well-prepared positions of the 2nd Baton 53rd Regiment during the night, but they could do little else, as each attack brought more and more failure. Under the cover of darkness and marine motor fire, Katayama's assault troops and engineers hacked their way to the lower slopes of Target Hill. They did their very best not to make any noise as they attempted scaling it, but the marine defenders heard them. On January the 3rd, they launched their attack, unleashing artillery, motor, and 20mm machine cannon fire from below the hill. However, most of the artillery missed the hill altogether, and the 20mm cannon fire was not causing much damage. Company D's motors replied with their positions behind the hill, but the high angle of fire precluded effective damage to the advanced enemy elements, which had actually worked their way to positions about 20 feet from the Marines' front emplacements by then. Katayama's 5th Company, leading the assault, fought bravely and with great determination, but against the steep terrain and inadequate support, and against a very alert enemy, while it proved too much for them. By dawn, the attack had died down, and the 5th Company was virtually annihilated. 
Further to the west, the 53rd Regiment's secondary attack had achieved very little and suffered heavily for it. The Japanese were now trying to resist Shepard's attacks along Suicide Creek, while engineers of the 17th Marines were building a corduroy causeway across the coastal swamp to enable tanks to come into the action. By the morning of the 4th, following a 15-minute artillery bombardment, the 1st Sherman wallowed through the shallow waters and mounted itself on the opposite bank. Soon the other Shermans followed up with their 75mm guns and they began to absolutely devastate the Japanese emplacements from point-blank range. Shepard's assault battalion surged forward across the whole front, encountering not much opposition. Encouraged by the victory and the apparent death or withdrawal of all the Japanese in contact to the immediate front, General Shepard ordered the advance to continue, changing direction to south-southeast. Meanwhile, the 2nd Bataan 7th Marines, pinched out by the successful sweep of its former front and tying in on the 3rd Bataan and 1st Bataan on their left, executed a wide swing inland. They made contact with the right of the 3rd Bataan, 5th Marines extending the line westward. And so, by nightfall, Shepard held a 4 battalion strong front against Katayama's positions at Agiri Ridge and Hill 150. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Over there, I've just released a four-part series on General Kanji Ishiwara, the man who invaded Manchuria and arguably started World War II. That used to be an exclusive series on my Patreon. And if you want to check out other exclusive podcasts over there, check out www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel. Operation Michaelmas, the landings at Sador were both a great success, forcing General Adachi to shift numerous units around scrambling to remedy the situation. Yet with so many Japanese units trapped, isolated, and continuing to retreat north, would they ever be able to halt the Allied advance?